welcome back to the Kimberly Levy podcast. Today we speak with Dr. Grace Lee, who is a neuroscientist turned highly successful entrepreneur. Dr. Grace's story is absolutely riveting. In the first half of our discussion, she takes us through her incredible journey from losing her mother in a tragic accident to becoming an orphan and facing the world all alone at the raw age of 10. Dr. Grace shares each step as she fought to earn her PhD following the only framework to success that she knew. Then she explains how she quickly became stuck in the corporate world and eventually uncovered the keys to unlock her true potential as an entrepreneur. We dispel the myth that it is in fact hard to pivot. We discuss fear, anxiety, taking empowered action, and leadership. So if you're feeling discouraged, lost, or stuck, this is a great episode to help you along your transformation. Let's dive in. I have Dr. Grace Lee on the Kimberly Levy podcast joining me. Welcome, Dr. Grace. It is such a pleasure having you here today. I want to hear all about what you do. I understand you help entrepreneurs get their message out there to have the wealth and the impact that they desire. So can we get a better idea as to what exactly you do in your business? Awesome. Kimberly, first of all, it is my honor and my privilege to be here. We've chatted multiple times on Clubhouse and I ob- awesome. I obviously sh- love sharing the stage with you and adding value to other entrepreneurs. So thank you for the invitation. Right. So I, I like that question. Love to love to bring some clarity around that because, you know, as entrepreneurs, we do a bunch of different things. Right. So simple. The simplest way to explain what I do and how I help entrepreneurs is to really help them to have a five figure payday, a six figure day, payday and sometimes even a seven-figure payday, right? And it is really about showing them how they can generate leads on autopilot by being present on social media, by having a sales process to take them from their social media platform where they're putting the right message out there that matches their market and then having a sales process in place that turns them from leads into prospects, And then having another conversation where you can take them from a prospect into a client, right? So I help them on all avenues of autopilot lead generation to converting and sales and converting clients that are, have already raised their hand and that have already been consuming the content on social media. Right. And then on the back end, once they are your clients, then it is about supporting them in their delivery of the fulfillment because now you've made some promises. Here's what I can help you do in my business. This is what I do. Now you got to fulfill on the promise. So then it is about helping them. Once they are your client, how do you fulfill on the process? How do you fulfill on your on your offer in such a way that it doesn't take over your life? It doesn't burn you out. But at the same time, you deliver the best result you can to the people that you serve in a way that they get there in the fastest time as possible. Possible, right? And it's all about building those systems and processes into your business. I hope that was that was more clear. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's very clear. And I feel like there is so much to dive into as far as your business and also your story, because your story is absolutely riveting. It is probably one of the most impactful stories I have ever heard. So Before we dive into all that goodness that you have and your knowledge as a neuroscientist as well, I would love for you to share your story and your childhood and kind of what happened with our audience here. Kimberly, I appreciate that question. 
it, it, you're right. It, it's a very rare story in the sense that even myself, although I talk to a lot of people, I meet a lot of people, I haven't, I haven't heard a story where there were the, these various elements that were involved, right? And so it, it really begins quite early on in childhood. My, my life was very normal. I was very happy up until the age of eight. And what happened at eight years old was that my nuclear family, which is the, my mom and dad and my older brother and myself, the four of us were involved in a car accident. And it was a head-on collision, high speed. My mother was driving at the time and she was in a coma and she passed away. So she suffered a severe brain trauma. And for me, I was nearly I was nearly a quadriplegic. I broke my neck high up, so very close to the base of my skull. I had broken my neck and I was just fractions of a millimeter away from injuring my spinal cord, which would mean that I wouldn't be able to move my arms or my legs. I'd be in a wheelchair dependent on a respirator. I was so close to that fate. And so my recovery was was over a year long to be in what they call a halo brace, you know, having four pins in your skull and, and a brace around your, your, your head, kind of like the, the halo of an angel. So I had that metal halo around my head to hold my neck in place. And I, and I wore that for a year. And oh being in the hospital on the bed, unable to move for months until I was discharged. And then I had to learn to walk again. Because when you're in a bed like that with weights on your neck to, to put traction on your neck, then, you know, my limbs have atrophied. And I really needed to regain strength to learn to walk again. And that process was very long and painful too. So here I was in a, in a year-long recovery with physio, you know, learning to regain strength, to hold my head up again, to stand on my own legs, to learn how to walk again. And the recovery was over a year. And eventually, you know, I regained all of my senses. I regained all of the motor control of my legs. So fortunately, I made a full recovery. I'm very grateful for that. I made a full recovery from the injuries. You know, but at the same time, I was to continue the rest of my life without my mom. And it was a huge, a huge, a huge, like um, a huge pain for me because the grief, what the grievance of that was very painful because my mom was my whole life. She wasn't just my mother. She was my best friend. She was my cheerleader. She was everything to me. You know, and it was because I was growing up in a community, a very small town where I was the only person who was not Caucasian. I was the only non-white person in, in, my, in my whole school because we went to a predominantly white community and I didn't have any friends. So my mother was my only friend, essentially. And losing her was basically losing everything that I could imagine. So it was very, it was very tough for me to hear the news that she had passed and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye or visit her in the hospital because I, I couldn't go there myself being confound to my bed. And all this happened around my, around my birthday. And so a couple of years goes by and I made this full recovery from my injuries. And in that time, my father, my birth father, he remarried. He had a couple of children from that marriage and somewhere in the process of between the two daughters that he that he birthed from the second marriage he comes to my he comes into my bedroom and he basically tells me that you know his hands are full and he he's unable to take care of me and i was 10 years old at the time and when i heard it i knew what that meant and it meant that i was i got to take care of myself i knew what it meant was that i had the whole weight of the world on my shoulders and i had i had nobody to depend on and I really didn't know where I was going to go. So that was the time since 10 years old, I was on my own and I didn't have a place to call home. And I didn't feel like I had a hope in the future. I didn't feel I had a chance at anything, but I tried to survive 
every day was about survival and I didn't know where I was going to go the next day. So four years had gone by like this. Now I'm 14 and I'm working in this restaurant and not for wages because, you know, at that age they, they didn't pay me, but they allowed me to eat there. And at the same time, you know, I was I was meeting people, the customers that came to eat at the restaurant and this older couple comes in and I've never seen them before. They come to eat at the restaurant. I wait on them because I'm their waitress. And then they settle their bill and they turn to me and they say, Grace, do you need a place to stay? Why don't you come and stay with us? And it was just like that. I was so desperate because I didn't know what else to do that I followed them home, got in their car and I went with them home and I never met them before. But, but fortunately, we got to their house and I still remember it to this day. Very humble, yellow wooden house, two stories, ground level, bring me into the kitchen, you know, narrow uh, carpeted staircase. They brought me up, turned right, and there was the biggest bedroom I've ever seen yellow walls, four yellow walls, slanted ceiling, huge, the biggest bed I've ever seen. And all their furniture was like cherry wood from the 1960s from Great Britain. And I'm standing in the middle of this room, the floors are creaking under us, and their husband and wife, the couple is husband and wife, the husband turns to me and he goes, Grace, welcome home. You can stay here for as long as you like. And you would think that in that moment, I would be grateful. But I couldn't be grateful because I was too busy. I was too busy trying to survive. And the only thing I can think in that moment was, I don't know how long I'm allowed to stay here. I might be asked to leave any minute now. So I don't know, I can't trust, I can't trust it. Right? And that's, that was the only thing I was thinking. So some time had went by and I, re, and I couldn't, and I just couldn't bring myself to build a relationship with them because I didn't trust them. I didn't know if it was real. I didn't know if, it, if they were sincere. So two years went by. Now I'm 16. One morning, you know, I, I wake up and there's a, there's a window in that bedroom that overlooks the backyard. And the husband is outside and I can hear his voice through the walls. He's talking to the neighbor. neighbor and if you, if you know what I mean, I, this is the first time I heard him. I didn't just hear his voice. I heard him for the first time. So I'm sitting on the windowsill with my face pressed against the window and I'm looking down into the backyard and I see him talking there. And that moment was the first time that I realized this couple, they're the real deal. They really meant what they said. I could stay here for as long as I need. They are sincere. And that was when I felt gratitude for the first time. Tears of gratitude rolling down my face and now when I look back on it I didn't I couldn't have the words to vocalize it back then but that was the first principle I learned in my life the principle that when you start with gratitude you no longer have to fear because fear and gratitude do not happen they cannot coexist and when you have gratitude that is when you get resourceful and you stop giving up on life hope sets in right resourcefulness sets in in that moment when I was finally grateful and I felt it I told myself you know what, I don't want to give up on life anymore. I want to stop giving up my life. In fact, I want a better life. I want to be financially independent. I want to have my own place and I want to be successful. And when I am successful and when I have a great job, I want to give back to this couple. It was because of, it starts with gratitude, right? So that was my humble beginnings. But here I am, I make this decision and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. The only thing I knew was I got to go to school. 
the only thing I knew how was I'm in high school now. I have to finish high school. Then I got to go to college. I had to do well in college so I can get a good job. That's the only thing I knew. The only framework of life that I knew. And so now my question is, how am I going to afford to go to college? But as I mentioned earlier, when you have gratitude, resourcefulness sets in. I asked that question, how am I going to afford it? And it was about being resourceful, getting resourceful. And that was when I realized that although I don't get paid working at that restaurant, I do get tips once in a while. I realized that if I treat people better, if I have conversations with them, and on holidays and special occasions, they tip more as well. By the time I finished high school, I had $60,000 saved up. And I figured out that I can get a scholarship. So my scholarship paid for my bachelor's education. The tuition only. It paid for tuition only. But I covered the school fees and the, and the room and board and that with my savings. And that was how I paid for my first degree in college thinking that this was my, my, my ticket to freedom. And that's what I said when I was 16. My education is going to be my ticket to freedom. That's what I told myself. Wow. That, that is such, thank you for sharing that story. It, um, it is the craziest story. And so you didn't stop there, Dr. Grace, you did not stop. So you went, you put yourself through undergrad and you're still, are you still, did you move out of the yellow house at that time? Or were you still with the family? You moved out. Okay. So then what happened? Yeah, I moved out and I went to college. The they gave me a the university gave me a scholarship and they even gave me a thousand dollars for a flight to go there. So I went, arrived at the university, and here I am, huge school, never been there before, everything's brand new, don't know anybody, you know. And it was all about creating a new life. And my parents, I call them my mom and dad now, they're my parents now. When I left for college, they decided to move to Uganda, to Africa. And that was another huge loss for me. I had to really grieve that one because I really didn't know if I would ever see them again. They were moving to Uganda because they wanted to start an orphanage there for the kids in Uganda. I was their first orphan. And now, you know, this is like 20 years later, they have hundreds of other orphans that they've helped in Africa. It was huge. It was a huge loss for me. It was a huge, I, I really grieved it when they told me on the phone, they've decided to move to Uganda. So I really didn't see them for many years. When they moved, I never saw them for many years. We, ca- we tried to keep in touch on Skype. At that time, it was Skype. Uh, but, you know, internet connection instability over there, they, they, you know, it's not like, it's not like what we have here. Their, re- their, their resources, their telecommunications weren't quite up to par compared to North America. So I had a hard time staying in touch. But I moved on with my education. I finished my bachelor's education. And as they, as they say in society and in school, you have a bachelor's degree. They tell you more that, well, if you want to do good, then you got to go for more school. So I bought into the lie that if I want to be successful, I need more education. So I went for my master's degree. <laughs> I went from, yeah, I went from, now here I am. I flew to Scotland. In the UK, I'm in Edinburgh University, and I went there because it's a prestigious university for neuroscience. And that was the only reason why I chose Edinburgh University, because I was all about the school's got to be prestigious, right? I'm on a reputation. You know, I got to get a good job. I got to do well in a good school, because that's what they, they, they tell you. So that's what I did. Now I'm in my master's degree, 
and I'm counting my pennies and I realize that I only can afford one year there. So here's the second principle that I learned in life, that if we want to be successful, sometimes when we are in a do or die situation, we tend to succeed. Mm. It was a do or die situation for me because I invested in that degree and I knew I only had one year before my money ran out. So I told myself, well, I guess I'm going to finish my master's degree in one year. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. That's not where I thought we were going. Okay. That's crazy. So you did it. That's what you did. Yeah. Do or die situation. Oh when my we gosh. are in a do or die situation, when we are committed, we're not doing it only if it's convenient. When we're committed, we do whatever it takes. So that's the second principle I learned in life. I was committed to, to do whatever it takes. So I finished in one year. You know, now I'm graduating my master's degree one year later, and I still don't know what I want to do in life. I have all this knowledge now. I still don't know what I do want to do in life. So guess what? More education. Because it's sometimes a great way to put off, delay important life decisions. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to have a gap in my resume. So I went for my PhD. Oh my God, naturally. Yeah, that, that's the next logical step. That's not a problem. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking it's logical <laughs> because a PhD comes after a master's. I was thinking, yeah, that's logical. So I applied for it and that's when I came to Vancouver. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. I had my sight set on Vancouver as a city. I visited before, loved it. And I told myself, I'm going to settle in Vancouver. I'll do my PhD there, I'll get a job there, and then I'll settle there. That was my life plan. So I went for the PhD in Vancouver and I got accepted. Halfway through, I nearly quit. Really? Because I just couldn't see where this was leading. And I was not, I did not enjoy research. I just didn't enjoy it. It just wasn't me. I was trapped in a laboratory. I literally was the one with the white coat, microscope, you know, working with animal models. That was totally me. Chemicals, beaker. That was me. Uh, literally, it was like the, the picture you think of a scientist. That was me in my PhD. And it was just not where, not where I felt like I was mo the most optimized. But I didn't know what else to do. So I completed my PhD. Yeah, I completed my PhD. <laughs> Okay. So then, now by now you've overcome all these different, your personal adversities. Thank you for sharing that part of your story. And there's just so much to dive into on all of it. So you essentially take your, take the one framework, you know, which is education, take it as high as you possibly can, despite the fact that you have zero support, zero help, and you are just nose to the grindstone and like you said do or die and you get it done so did you hit nirvana after that where did that put you you're right it was all get it done got to get the job done because i committed when i was 16 that i want a good life i want to be financial independent but here's what happened i didn't hit nirvana just because i became dr grace lee i became dr grace lee i have all this knowledge now but i didn't know how to make money Right? I've been in 10 years, nine years actually, to be in college, nine years in college, and not a single day in class, not a single professor taught us how to make money. We never spent any classes on money. Now we have all this knowledge. How do we turn it into income? I had no idea. The only thing I knew how to do was apply for jobs, compete for jobs, and go for interviews. And that's what I did. Got my first job that way. And outside of 
my PhD, my first job after that earned me $50,000 a year as Dr. Grace Lee. And I couldn't understand what am I missing? Do I work up from here? Do I climb the ladder? You know, what, what do I do? And I had no idea. But I also knew that the first job I got was just the first job I could get. And I felt like I couldn't, I could not, you know, I, I couldn't hold out any further. I needed something. So I just took whatever was given to me, whatever I applied to that seemed promising. They made me an offer. So I took it. And so in those couple of years working there, I also was not passionate about what I was doing. And to the point where, you know, I didn't feel challenged. I didn't feel this was my most optimized space, but I didn't know what my optimized space was. So I left and I went into corporate. It was my first job was in the hospital, still within academia, which they call in, in the university. Now my job in corporate, I finally left the academic pillars and I'm in the corporate world now. Corporate Canada not corporate America, but corporate Canada. And this was like real corporate. I'm, I'm in this position. I'm a senior manager. You know, I'm responsible for one part marketing, one part product management, one part business strategy, KPIs, metrics, sales, things like that. So I have my finger in, in many different departments. It's a very cross-functional role. And I didn't even have any business experience. I realized that I got this role because I speak very well. I learned to communicate very well and therefore do well on interviews, right? Do well in networking, do well in communicating my value. And so I was able to persuade them to hire me, even though I didn't have the right work experience and I had the wrong degree. Right? So I'm in this business role now and I'm thrust in there. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I need to get an MBA and learn on this role on the job. Here I am still thinking in terms of education, right? But I learned on the job succeeded, met my metrics, but then I realized this corporate world is not for me. I didn't like the, the corporate role. And I, I realized that in my true core values, I wanted more flexibility and control over my own schedule. So that's when I left corporate and I finally answered my inner voice calling out to me to start my own business. And that's where okay. we are today, my own business. That is a beautiful, beautiful summary of your entire life so far. I'm captivated. I feel like I'm watching a movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is, I, I don't even want to interrupt you because it's so powerful what you're saying. So here's the point. I, I'm glad you paused right where you did because the point that you're highlighting and the point that we're, we just stopped your story at is the point that I think a lot of people don't actually make that next step. So a lot of those things that you described in terms of, okay, I checked the box, I got it done, I did my education, I tried this job, didn't like it, I sidestepped, tried another job, really wasn't my highest and best, but you know, I was doing it and doing it fairly well actually, but it wasn't in alignment with your highest purpose. And so a lot of the people that I have seen out there, especially folks, that, you know, perhaps they're making multiple six figures, let's say, and that's all good. And they're in their safe, cushy job, but they're just not happy. And I think this is the part where a lot of people just stay stuck and they stay still. And this is where the neuroscience, the entrepreneur, the risk taker, all of these different things come into play that I really want to dive into deeply from your perspective. So 
Can you explain, maybe from a neuroscience perspective, why is it so hard for us to change our reality as we know it once we are, let's say, in our 30s or we're well past the point of the developmental age? What is it from a physical, is there a physical reason that it is hard for us to change our reality and to get unstuck? I love that question, Kimberly. Thank you for asking. And one thing I like about chatting with you is that you always ask great questions and great questions always lead to a better discussion. So I really love how you conduct your podcast, how you invite your guests and how you how you explore questions with them. I really appreciate that, Kimberly. So thank you. Thanks. Right. So, yeah. So about why is it so hard to change our reality? My question, my answer to that is what if it's not? What if it's not hard? Right. But it, we perceive it as hard simply because we've never done it before, simply because we don't know what that path looks like. We don't know what is involved in that path. We don't know what we need to do in that path. We don't know who we need to become in that path because it is simply an unknown. And anything that is unknown, our brain will immediately try to make sense of it. And the way that we make sense out of it is to create stories. And the stories we create will automatically be created from pieces that we are familiar with because we're trying to make sense of it. And the only thing that we're familiar with is the things of our past. Right? And because the unknown is scary, which is normal, because the unknown you know, produces feelings of uncertainty, you know, of, of you know, failure, of fears and things like that and anxieties, then the stories that we will draw from the past to make sense of it will match what we perceive the unknown to be. So we tell ourselves stories normally that are disempowering. We tell ourselves stories that will discourage ourselves from it. We tell ourselves stories that we think we're just being realistic. We're, be, we're being conservative. We don't want to thrust ourselves into a high-risk situation. And then we rationalize and justify why this story is the one that makes sense for us. Right? And so we do it from a neurological standpoint subconsciously because we want that protection. We want to gain more certainty. But we also fundamentally need to make sense out of something. But making sense out of it necessarily means that we got to have something to compare to. Just like, how do we know if something's big if we don't know that something is small? How do we know that we are experiencing the best happiness, the best fulfillment in our life when we haven't experienced sadness? Right? So the comparisons are really important. And when we compare, we're comparing something we know, which is in the past, with something we absolutely don't have a mental model for. And so what can we do? What we are left to our own, if we're left to our own guise is without a guidance from outside help, then that is automatically what we will reach to, right? And so I hope that explanation um, was clear enough in terms of why, but it's not necessarily that changing our reality is hard. For some, it's just not that hard. And for some, it does not necessarily take years or decades. And we will never know until we seek that turnaround, and we take the right steps with the right help in doing so. I love that. Yeah, it's it really does come down to mindset at the end of the day. And this idea of having, you know, not having a mental model is so interesting. I haven't heard that before. And I think it's so important. It reminds me of something I'd heard where, you know, a lot of us focus on weeding out the negative, right? But you get to a point in life where you need to start adding positive people and I really believe in the power of finding someone that is doing something 
similar to what you're, you're aspiring to do to the best of your extent that you can decipher that and really study what it is they're doing specifically, the way that they operate, not just sitting and, you know, perusing their social media. No, look at their business model. How do they conduct themselves? How do they carry themselves? What big pieces do they have in place? What are the actions they are taking that is different than what you've seen before? And I think that's so important because what I teach my students, and I'm very curious about your, how you kind of do your work as well in the transformation space is how, you know, it's so important to see the art of the possible is what I tell them. You need to see the art of the possible. And I think particularly at the time that you and I are in, because you and I come from a place where we were raised in a way that there's a very, as you said, there's only really one major framework out there, right? You work hard, you get educated, you get a good job. And that has been the model. And then boom, here comes the internet and changes the game. Totally rewrites the rules, as you and I know, kind of right in the middle of both of our careers. So I guess to that end, can you speak a little bit more about how, what are great ways for someone that is sitting there right now and they're feeling stuck in their job, in their relationship, in their physical location, wherever and however they personally feel stuck? How, what are tools or ways that you kind of guide and coach folks to overcome those circumstances to create an entirely new reality for themselves? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You ask great questions as ever. That's a really excellent question. And I know how the importance of it because I was there. I was there for quite a number of years. And in that moment, and I remember it so well, like it was yesterday, in those moments, those lengthy moments of feeling stuck, I didn't know what was missing. I didn't know why I was feeling stuck even. I just knew that I was feeling stuck, but I didn't know why, what was missing, what do I do, right? Should I even do something about it? Is this all there is? You know, should I say the track? Should I tough it out? Should I wait and see? I had no idea. And but here's the thing, when we don't know something, when we don't know something, what I say is that there's always four quadrants of knowing, right? There's the things that you know you know. There's the things that you know that you don't know. But there's the quadrant of there are things that you don't even know that you don't know. And of course, the fourth one are the absolute unknowables. The part about you don't know what you don't know, right? I didn't even know what I don't know. That is our greatest opportunity for growth. And the first way to see what we don't know is to seek. And then the question that you might be asking, you're listening to this, well, where do I look? The answer is everywhere. You got to look everywhere. You have to read the books. You got to go to the seminars. You got to speak to coaches. You got to hire some coaches. You got to talk to mentors. You got to talk to people. You have to look everywhere. Sometimes we are one idea away from the best life we could ever live. Sometimes we are one idea away, one collaboration away, one fill in the blank away, but we won't know where it is until we seek. The first step to any turnaround, whether it be a financial turnaround, a relationship turnaround, a fitness turnaround, the very first step to any turnaround at all is to seek that turnaround. So seek. The fact that you feel stuck is a signal that there needs to be an action to seek. 
because when you seek, you find something. And finding something is better than not seeking and staying in the realm of I don't know what I don't know. So the first step is to seek, explore, talk to people. And when you talk to people, it leads to other people. Don't just stop at one person. Tell them, who do you recommend that I talk to who might be an expert in XYZ? Where would you recommend that I go if I want to find out how to ABC? It always leads to somewhere else. Follow the leads. Follow the leads. And along the way, even if you don't find the exact solution that you thought you were looking for, I guarantee you will find a solution that's better than the one you thought you should have looked for. <laughs> and that's how it always is, isn't it? Because oh, yeah. our consciousness right now is thinking about thinking that we need this, we need this answer, but we don't know what we need. If we're stuck, if we've never tried that path, we don't know what we need. And so as we seek, we learn more. And our mental models about the world, our mental models about this path will change. It matures. It gets better. And so what we thought we once needed, we realize, oh, that's not what I needed. I realize that now. Right, so I hope that is um, a, a clear enough framework. Oh, yes, it is. And what you're saying just highlights, you know, it really takes so much bravery to stay, to not stay in that quadrant that you speak of where you're stuck. And I love how you said the fact that you're aware that you're stuck is a signal. I think that is super powerful. The other thing that's super powerful you mentioned, you know, is this notion of being curious and seeking out answers and listening. That is so important. That is such an imperative point of success is being able to be a student and learning and asking and listening. And, and then finally, the last thing that struck me that you just said is the willingness to take the action. I see a lot of people stuck in fear and so they don't take the action. And I always say, and I've more recently really leaned into take a, taking massive, scary action because to your point, you don't really know enough. I think that as soon as you start taking massive, imperfect action, you can acquire knowledge and skills so much faster. And there's no replacement for real experiences. And only after you have acquired that knowledge, skills, and experience, can you start, again, seeking out that next step. It, it's an accelerator to start asking or getting closer to the right people, resources, or questions. What do you think about that? Yeah, and I absolutely agree, right? Because curiosity is not just about having curiosity. It's about having genuine curiosity. Because when you think curiosity, it's like, oh, just asking questions for the sake of question or asking questions or asking questions to be a little bit nosy about this. But genuine curiosity explores things without judgment, right? And genuine curiosity is also the foundation of leadership. Leadership is being genuinely curious, genuinely curious of the, what makes your team members feel a certain way, what makes them tick, what is their purpose, being genuinely curious without passing judgment. So when we have genuine curiosity about ourselves, about why are we feeling this way? Why do I behave that way? Why do I have those fears? Then we can discover for ourselves and lead ourselves into the promised land. So the second thing I wanted to talk about was what you mentioned about presence of fear, 
fear is what happens the feeling that we get that that has a physiological outcome when there is a clear and present danger then we experience fear our brain registers fear a certain way and fear is when there is a clear and present danger when it is an actual threat to our health our well-being or our life but for those living in north america in first world you know in 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 where where we're more privileged right 99.9% of the time we don't have a threat to our life we don't have a clear threat and danger to our well-being or our health 99.9% of the time if you're working in a job you don't like if you are stuck it's not really threatening your life or your health in any way it's not a clear and present danger so by that by that neuroscience definition it's not fear we're experiencing it is anxiety Right. Fear and anxiety are not the same thing. Anxiety is when we have we exude this caution. We take caution over a future imagined danger. Because we tell ourselves a story, which we mentioned, we talked about earlier, stories because we're trying to make sense of the future. But anytime we tell ourselves a prediction about the future, a story about the future, we made it up. Because there's no way we can know the future. So whatever we predict about the future, we've made it up. And it presents itself as anxiety because we're taking caution over this future imagined danger. And anxiety is very dangerous because when we feel it, it is paralyzing. Right? When we're joyful, when we're in gratitude, those emotions cause us to take action. We feel more empowered. Anxiety is the opposite. It robs us of the energy. And our function is paralysis. That is so true. That is so powerful. It's incredible. So I want to, I want to ask you kind of switching gears, but listen, I know that you are a money machine in terms of getting people unstuck and in this transformative systematic approach to their life, a new approach. Can you speak to us a little bit about, you know, how can we start How can we start down that path of starting to experience, you know, more wealth, more joy? How do we do it? How do you, maybe a couple steps that you do in your business that are key that you see that entrepreneurs are missing, like what, you know, something we're missing it. Can you, can you start to shed some light on what it is you're hiding back there? Cause we know your wealth (laughs) of knowledge. (laughs) Kimberly, I appreciate you. That's an, an excellent question. I want to make a distinction here because I want to make sure that my dictionary matches your dictionary. And if you're listening to this uh, on replay, then it match our, our, we're talking about the same thing here, right? You, the word you use was wealth and wealth is not the same thing as riches, right? When we talk about rich, that is a measure of what's in the bank account. It's the dollar, right? So that's rich. Wealth is not the same. Wealth is more of a mindset. You can be wealthy without having a huge bank account. You can be wealthy without having millions in savings or 401k, right? And so wealth is a mindset, but you can build wealth as well, even if you don't make by dollar a lot in one year. Because here's the thing about wealth. Wealth is measured more in terms of time than it is in terms of money. Let me show you what I mean by that. Most of the time in society, we hear that if we're not wealthy, it's because we're not making enough money. They think that 
we need to make 100k a year we need to make 150k a year and that is more wealth but it's not measured in terms of dollars because i could be making a hundred thousand a year and still be broke i could be making five hundred thousand a year and still be broke i could be making two million dollars a year and still be broke it's not about how much money i make it's about how fast i made that money if I was, if I made 50000 a year, like I did when I first graduated, how long would it take me to make a million dollars? It would take me more than 20 years to make a million dollars. It would take me more than 30 years to make a million dollars. So then am I wealthy? Most people would say, no, 50K a year, I'm not wealthy. But the wealth is measured in terms of a million dollars, right? If I took 40 years to make a million dollars, most people would say, I'm not wealthy. What if I, instead of taking 40 years, what if I made $1 million in one year? Then am I wealthy? Depending on who you ask, some people might say, Relative. that's okay. Right? Yeah. Right. right. And some people might say, oh yeah, you're wealthy. You know, for me, I would say, nah, it's okay. Right. So now what if I took that same million, same amount of money, a million dollars, but I made it in one month. Now am I wealthy? Right. And by that measure, most people would say yes. What if I took, instead of making it in one month, I made it in a day, a million in a day, then am I wealthy, right? So you see, it's the same amount of money. I just made it faster. Wealth is not measured in terms of how much money you make. It is more measured in terms of time, time. And we are so focused on money. We're so focused on, you know, saving money. We're so focused on getting out of debt when the most valuable thing we have is time. Wealth is measured in time. Wealthy people understand that it's not that they need to make more money, it's that they need to invest to buy back their time because time is more valuable than money. And then they understand that it's not about how much money you make, it's what you do with the money after you make it. That has more to do with creating wealth and building wealth than just trying to make more money. I could be having a decent income of seventy to eighty thousand a year, and most people would say, "Oh, that's average income." But what I do with that money, I could still build wealth, and that's what most people don't understand. So I hope that was helpful. Yeah it it makes it makes you really shift the way you look at not only money and time, but also goals and changing. So, so for someone that is saying, you know what, that's it. I quit my corporate job. I was making six figures. I'm ready to go out and I'm sick of making 150,000, $200,000 a year. I want to accelerate that and compress the amount of time it, it takes for me to make that kind of money in you know, significantly less time. What are some of the key tools for say an online, let's talk online businesses, because I know business is broad, but let's say specifically a service-based entrepreneur, okay? A service-based entrepreneur. What are three things they must do to get closer to making more money faster Okay. That's an excellent question. And unfortunately, we don't have the time in this in, in this in this hour to talk about all of it. But here's what I will say. But here's what I will say. If you are wanting to start an online business and it is service-based, making more money in a shorter period of time is great. And that is the name of the game if you want financial independence, financial freedom. However, you can't forget the other side. 
services take time to fulfill. Right? What use is it if you're making more money in less time, but you also don't have the time to enjoy it? Right? So what you want to do is productize the service. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing you want to do is think about you got to have the right business model. Because if you want to really monetize and compress that time frame, you have to have the right business model. You have to have the sales processes that are online. You have to have an online delivery mechanism, right? You have to have systems and processes and, and also really benefit from having remote teams that build for you when it is the right time to scale and knowing how to get to the point of scaling, how to grow to the point where and knowing when it is time to onboard, when it is time to have those processes and implement those processes and people in place. So that's what I would say in a nutshell. Wow, that's that in itself is very helpful. When you talk about productizing your service-based business, would you say what like online courses, digital products, ebooks, like what are some ways that folks can do that? There are so many different ways to do that and you named three of them. However, it depends on your business model. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by understanding the right business model for you, for the market that will be able to monetize quickly and that can scale without more of your time and that can be fulfilled effectively as well. So there is no, unfortunately, there's no cookie cutter response of saying, okay, here's what I'll recommend, right? It really depends on the right, what's the right business model for you. The choice of business model is key. And so in your business, what are the types of entrepreneurs that you service typically? Great question, Kimberly. Really what I, the, the entrepreneurs that I'm looking for are the ones that are committed to their success, right? They're not absolute beginners in terms of not knowing who they serve, not having an offer together yet, and you know, not necessarily absolute beginners, but they have an idea, at least an idea of this is what I'm good at and this is what I wanna offer. Maybe they don't, just don't understand how to deliver it. Maybe they just don't understand where to find their clients. Or maybe they have had a client here or there in the past, but they're ready for more revenue. They're ready to serve more people, to have more reach, and to have to produce more of an impact in the people they want to serve. Right? And so they are, for example, entrepreneurs. They are coaches. They're consultants. They're authors, speakers, content creator, course creators. Those are the people that I serve in my business. Got it. And do you, do you teach course creators how to create courses? Is that something that you do in your business? It's a small component of it. Just just learning how to create the course is one thing. But here's the mistake that most entrepreneurs make. They focus so much on the product, which is in, in what we're talking about here is the course, right? They focus so much on that. And they're so passionate about the thing they do. They're so passionate about the thing that doing that thing that they focus so much on the product. They like their product. They're so attached to the product, but then they try to sell it. And then either not enough people want it or it doesn't quite match the message that they're putting out there. And they're, the, the lead generation is kind of stuck, right? And so I always say that the course or the the thing that you're selling itself the product that you're selling that you're selling the offer itself is only one component of the business it is not the most important it is not the be all and end all there has to be all these other supporting contextual features that are in place before the the product is even created right i i hope that makes sense 
It does. And it lends itself to kind of what I teach, which is around this concept of having a business model, right? Like I can't tell you how many, and I'm sure you see it all the time is when you are an entrepreneur, you need to treat your business like a business. You need to have a process in place, a roadmap, infrastructure, so many things before you even automate and systematize and all that stuff. You need to have a, a blueprint. What would be your take on Clubhouse? What does it mean for entrepreneurs? How should they be leveraging it? What's the purpose? What's the value? I love that question, Kimberly, because it's so timely, isn't it? Right? Clubhouse is still new. It is still an elite because you need to be invited and it's Apple, it's iPhone only. So it's really timely, that question. I really appreciate that. And here's what I would say. Clubhouse, like any other platform, you have to understand the platform, right? You have to create the content for the platform. You have to show up in a way that is specific to the platform. Right. And Clubhouse is an audio only kind of like an interactive podcast kind of platform. So what lands on Clubhouse is to be able to deliver content that is informative, that is insightful, that connects to people, that shows the human side of you, that demonstrates that you can actually help someone by actually helping them. And those are the types of things that really make you stand out on Clubhouse. But the other thing about Clubhouse is that once you speak from the Clubhouse stage or speak in that room or ask the question or lead the the discussion, it's gone. So there's no staying power with Clubhouse. And you could have said something absolutely amazing. And only the people that were there in that time will have heard it. But after that, it's gone. There's no record of it. It doesn't get recorded anywhere. It doesn't, there's no staying power. So that is the thing about Clubhouse is that it's momentary, right? And the onus is then on us to be able to move the discussion offline. But the problem with moving discussions offline on Clubhouse is that the only way to reach you is if they click into your Instagram profile and then they they take the extra step to message you or they click on your link tree or whatever that is. But that's already three or four steps away, right? And a lot of times that attention doesn't say. So there are... Obviously, like any platform, there are advantages and disadvantages. But you just have to know how to navigate each platform and not to have your eggs all in one basket, right? And so it's great to dominate a platform. It's great to dominate Clubhouse, don't get me wrong. But you have to work backwards. What is the outcome you want to have on Clubhouse? And how are you going to achieve it? How is it going to meet your business objectives exactly? And how are you going to navigate that on Clubhouse? And that's what I would say about any other platform. But it's first, before you can answer that question about any platform, it's understanding how to be successful on that platform. I hope that was helpful. Oh, that was so helpful. That was beautiful. I love it. I want to say thank you so much for your time. I, again, could talk to you for hours. <laughs> and I love hearing when you speak. You have this way of showing up on Clubhouse and just no matter what the question is, if it's obscure or confusing, or all of us just don't know what to say, you come in and you have, you always have a framework, you have, you make sense of things in a way that is just, it's just so powerful. And I just so enjoy you. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Grace. You are such an inspiration. Thank you, Kim. I really appreciate you too. And I look forward to hosting more rooms with you. Thank you. 
All right, that is it for today. Now, as you know, some of our best conversations actually happen after the show. So I want you to find me on Instagram at Kimberly Lovey and let me know your thoughts about today's show. You can screenshot this episode and let us know what your biggest takeaway was and tag me at Kimberly Lovey and we can share it on our stories. I will see you again, same time, same place next week.